Welcome to Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics that matter to you. You were just listening to Let's Talk with John Kane, and I'm sure you heard that he said, I'm not going to get into the Trump stuff. That's because we're going to be able to do that here on Driving Forces today. I'm Jeff Simmons, and welcome back. I'm glad you're sticking with WBAI today. Well, I'm not sure where really to start. If you've been following all of the developments in Washington today, there's been quite a number, and I'm sure by the time this show is over, there'll be even more developments. Just a quick recap. The nine-page whistleblower's complaint that charged that President Trump abused his office by trying to get Ukraine to help him out in 2020, well, that's been out, that's been published. You can find that almost anywhere online. The acting intelligence chief, Joseph McGuire, testified before the House Intelligence Committee today, defended the whistleblower and said that person acted in good faith and said that this case is unprecedented. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi accused the president's administration of trying to cover this up and also said that the administration tried to lock down all records of a call between Trump and Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. President Trump said that whoever provided the whistleblower with information about his call with Ukrainians president is close to a spy and added that, and this is just so interesting, added that in the old days, spies were dealt with differently. The president's Republican defenders, no surprise, led by Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, branded the entire call for impeachment laughable. And a majority of the House members support an impeachment inquiry. And if the House votes on an article of an impeachment, a simple majority, and that's 218 votes, would be needed to impeach. So far, from what I read most recently, no Republicans came out in support. 135 did not, and 63 had not responded to the Times when asked to say where they stood. And really, breaking within the last two hours, the New York Times has identified somewhat who the whistleblower is. That's causing a lot of uh, Twitter to burn up about whether the Times should have done this, saying that the whistleblower was a CIA officer who was detailed to work at the White House at one point. So we need to catch our breath for a minute and consider how all of this is going to play out, what this will mean for the country, how it is also going to impact the presidential race, but also the House races. Now, last week, we did focus on when Mayor de Blasio was going to drop out, and well, the next morning, he did. So now a half dozen candidates, including him, have already thrown in, thrown in the towel. Next, thrown in the towel, thrown out the towel. I never get it right, my co-host. Thrown in the thrown towel. Thrown in the towel. And the next round of debates are on the horizon in mid-October. As I've mentioned, I wanted to have more guests in studio with me to take your calls. And in the next few weeks, and I'll announce them later during the show, I'll I'll talk a bit to you about who's going to be in here with me. But today, I want to bring in my in-studio guest, someone who knows city and state politics very well because he is a staff reporter at City and State, Jeff Colton. Welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. Thank you. And I know my idioms. I have not thrown in the (laughs) towel yet on uh, on the radio. Uh, This is is a return to... uh, where I came up in politics. I uh, started out at WFUV Radio uh, as a student at Fordham University. That's what got me into New York City and state government and politics and reporting. And uh, I am still here. So it's, it's a happy return to the airwaves. And talk a little about your coverage. And I know, I, you know I've seen some of your recent stories, but talk a little about the issues that have fascinated you, especially this season. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. We're a small team at City and State, so I get to cover a little bit of everything. But I'm primarily the City Hall reporter. And And uh, City Hall this summer has been pretty darn interesting. You know, you've got the mayor running for president and then no longer running for president, as we've mentioned. But at the same time, you've got a bunch of big policies that are moving through City Hall, not the least of which 
is uh, the attempt to build four borough-based jails uh, in in the Bronx, Queens, Manhattan, and Brooklyn, just down the street for our studio here. And uh, that's been really interesting to follow. The vote is next month, so I'm really keeping a close eye on that. That's been taking up a lot of my time uh, recently. But then uh, also elections. I know 2019 is an off year technically, but uh, it's not really an off year. We have the presidential races going. Congressional races are already heating up like nine months ahead of time. And uh, I've been following those closely as well. And when you go to those congressional races, I think of some of our uh, incumbents and looking at the progressive movement, I'm here, you know, I've talked to a few consultants who are already representing candidates ready to challenge those incumbents. Talk a little about what you're seeing happening on this in this scene. Oh, very much. So I'm sure we're going to get into this deeper later. But uh, there is, I mean, an incredible amount of people running for Congress, unprecedented in, I mean, I looked packed in the, in the past at least 50 years, completely unprecedented to have this many candidates, every single incumbent in New York City. And I think almost, in fact, I think, I think every single incumbent statewide, even the Republicans have at least two primary challengers. It, it's incredible. I mean, there is a total clip. People, incumbents that have been in office for 25 years never had a challenge like Jerry Nadler, Carolyn Maloney. They have... Uh, Elliot Engel. Elliot Engel as well. I mean, they have like six challengers and they're actually, some of <laughs> some of them are actually viable too, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to be very interesting to watch. Uh, and really, I mean, it's, to put it simply, it's the AOC effect. It's people that are inspired by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And even if they don't agree with her politics, these are candidates that say, well, if she could beat the powerful Joe Crowley, then why not me? And um, looking even ahead after 2020 to 2021, how often are you now hearing from uh, either potential candidates or their representatives about folks who are planning to run for council, for mayor, for controller? You know, I mean, I'm so many. hearing this new names each week now. Absolutely, yes. This seems to be the season where uh, people are making their decisions on 2021. And uh, as we know, there's going to be, I mean, if, if you think there's a lot of candidates running for Congress this year, I mean, my gosh, the, the city council races, it's going to be incredible. There's going to be so many people interested in filling these open seats. And of course, all the statewide, well, not, uh, excuse me, not public advocate, but controller, mayor and all five borough president positions will also be open so i mean 2021 is going to be so exciting i'm i'm already pumped for that and it's it's uh, the november elections are more than two years away so i want to go back to something you mentioned a short while ago about the borough-based jails and that you uh had indicated that uh there's another there's a vote coming up on this within the next month uh where have you seen you know support from uh, individual council members and where are you seeing the resistance because you know I, I'm from Queens I know that there's been a lot of concern in uh, the neighborhood where uh, this is being considered near uh, Borough Hall if I'm correct that's right uh, but wh- you know where are you seeing council members also saying you know what we've got to do something with Rikers we have to come up with another plan and this is what's the most reasonable approach or saying we have to come up with you know start from scratch once again come up with a new plan that's right I mean it, it's it is a huge and complex undertaking and it's it's hard to even get your head around all the difference of opinions because there's four different jail plans uh, or four different jails that are proposed that are all stuck together in one plan uh, so that's four different city council members that are representing each of those uh, and then there's an additional uh, 47 council members that have a vote on on whether to approve this plan and they're all interested and they're all hearing from 
uh, from advocates on, and also on all sides. You know, there's advocates that are uh, the, the No New Jails Coalition. They are insisting that, uh, yes, we close Rikers, but also we shouldn't be building new jails. Then there's the Close Rikers Coalition, which wants to close Rikers and build these new jails. There's the Lippmann Commission, which is affiliated with the Close Rikers movement, which wants to uh, also close Rikers and build new jails. Uh, I mean, like I said, just a variety of perspectives. But I, mean, I guess just, just to look at a, at a small one, to look at uh, downtown Brooklyn, for example. So right now on Atlantic Avenue, there is the Brooklyn Detention Complex. It is a, an active jail. There's, uh, I wish I could tell you exactly how many uh, how many people are in there currently. I, I wanna say it's somewhere around 800, I think. Uh, but you know, it's a pretty sizable jail here in Brooklyn. And the plan by the de Blasio administration is to transfer all of the inmates that are currently there to Rikers Island, knock down this building, which has stood since like the 1950s or 60s, and build a new, bigger, more technically advanced jail on the exact location. There's a lot of people that have issues with various sides of this plan, from the price to the, they're just unhappy with the size of it. Uh, some people say, why are we even bothering rebuilding it when we could just like renovate the inside of it? Uh, and and Stephen Levin is the local council member, and he is uh, has been barraged uh, uh, from constituents and, and and also just people living across the city uh, from all angles about what to do. But to put it simply, this plan is going to go forward. I wrote a story about this a couple weeks ago. The fact is that New York City Mayor Bill De Blasio, New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. They both want this to happen, and if the city's two most powerful leaders both want something to happen, it's probably going to happen, and this 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 plan is going to move forward. There might be some changes, but it's going to happen. Okay, so you're saying the city's two most powerful leaders, so I'm really curious if the mayor still has that perception of this power, given uh, all of the criticism of him over the last, how many days was it of his campaign? Truly. 10, 20? Uh, but... Um, when you think about all the concerns about him really phoning it in here in the city because he was busy campaigning out of state, now he has come back. He, according to reports, gave a pep rally to dozens, I saw different accounts, dozens to a hundred of his staff members. You know, like, you know, we've got two years left. This is what we have to do. Do you think he's going to get a lot of these things through now? I mean, he's a lame duck. He, it's, he has another two years and three months in office, and he's already a lame duck. I mean, it is... It's it's in some ways it's unprecedented uh, in in local politics. We haven't seen something like this. A, a mayor that has so little power. I'm going to. Uh, I'm sure my publisher is going to get mad at me right now. But let me give you a preview of the city and state cover coming out on Monday. It is a, a great story by our editor Ben Adler, and it's it says, "Welcome back to the least powerful man in New York." Bill de Blasio. He has, he has lost. I mean, it, it takes, it's a nuanced take. Don't get me wrong. It's not uh, just this, you know, slamming de Blasio for uh, being a uh, laughingstock, as some council members have openly called him. But uh, that's the thing. He, he never, he's, he, his power has been going down since he got elected. He was, you know, in 2014, he was elected. He was uh, at the top of his game. Uh, a lot of progressives were on his side, and he seems to be have, have been losing people ever since. This presidential race has just kind of made him more obviously the butt of jokes. And yes, I mean, admittedly, you can blame the press for uh, some of that. We have been, uh, you know, pretty unsparing in the criticisms of him. But 
that's the conversation happening around New York. I mean, people that have, you know, that, that have nothing to do with government politics, they see the mayor running for president and they laugh. He, he barely ever broke 1% in the polls. And at the same time, we had last week uh, Grace Rao and Rebecca Katzen here, and they were talking about some of his successes that he wasn't getting enough credit for nationally as he was campaigning. In a few minutes, we're going to bring in our first guest, uh, but I want to go back uh, to something that we discussed before we started the show today. Um, uh, you mentioned what was going to be on the next cover, but each Friday, City and State has winners and losers. Last week, you had considered the mayor one of the losers of the week. Can you preview with us who some of the winners of this week have been politically and some of the losers? Absolutely. Yeah, the winners and losers, it's 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 a very fun thing to be a part of, and it, it's uh, it's popular for City and State. It's a way to really get our... Uh, you know, cover cover the entire week uh, of local politics. Uh, I have uh, some, well, some some decently good news for De Blasio. One of his commissioners, Polly Trottenberg, is going to be a winner this week because of a uh, court case in I think it was Manhattan Supreme Court. Basically, uh, they decided that a certain piece of the Vision Zero plan is legal. Somebody had sued because the De Blasio administration had uh, put forth a law that if uh, you're driving and you hit somebody, that they then you can be hit with criminal charges. Uh, that happened to somebody. They they uh, they hit a pedestrian. They got hit with criminal charges, and they sued over the law, saying it was unconstitutional or whatever. Uh, and the De Blasio administration won. That law has has stood. So Polly Trottenberg, the uh, Department of Transportation commissioner, is a winner for that. Also, another winner this week is really. All the parents that have kids in New York City public schools, but we're giving the win to Michael Mulgrew, the uh, the UFT uh, leader, the the top uh, labor union leader for the city schools. That's because the Department of Education had scheduled school for Monday, December 23rd this year. Uh, that is two days before Christmas. Then the kids were going to get off on the 24th and 25th. People were like, wait, you're telling me that we have to go back to school two days before Christmas on a Monday? That's ludicrous. The teachers union... Uh, ran a campaign to get school off that day. I'm sure all one million of New York City students also supported it, and they won. They won. So congrats to uh, to the kids, to the parents, and everybody who gets off school a couple days before Christmas. And uh, we are going to bring on our next guest in uh, just a moment. I think we have got her on the line. Great. So we're going to come back to some more winners and losers, if there are more, but also talk more about some of the other stories. But uh, as we... Uh, talked about at the beginning of the show, lot, a lot has been going on in Washington, D.C. today, and that is why I'm really excited to have as our first call-in guest today, the former city council speaker, Christine Quinn. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff Simmons, and Jeff Colton, our in-studio guest today. Well, thank you, and you make it easy with the Jeff, so I'm happy <laughs> to be here, and it is... Uh, D.C. seems to always be a wild ride lately, unfortunately, but this seems to be a new new level. And in fact, that's, that's the main thing that has just astounded me today, the... Uh uh, the breakneck speed of all of the developments, I mean, within the last two hours, even the revelation by the Times about who the whistleblower is, which speaks to his credibility. Uh, can you talk right. a little about your reaction to everything that has happened today and the revelations about the president's actions in all of this? Well, so when the president's uh, uh, office said on Tuesday that they were going to release the transcript uh, the next day, I thought we would never see that transcript. 
that they would then say they realized that there was this or that, you know, alleged regulation that made it impossible. So one, I was just shocked that the promise of transparency relatively turned out to be true. And then the speed with which now everything has moved since Speaker Pelosi's announcement. And uh, the thing that's noteworthy for me about all of this is, you know, so many of us thought the Mueller report was going to be the holy grail that was going to unfurl everything we needed to know. But in this case, we start with the president and his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani's own admission. That was kind of, you know, enough that they had used uh, international military aid and funding to manipulate uh, or attempt to manipulate international leaders for the good of the president's presidential campaign. But then you come on top of it and get the, the transcript, which verifies what the president says and proves it even further. And then you have a whistleblower who is someone who is seemingly of the highest level integrity, adding more information and fuel to the fire. It's just becoming a, an undeniable scenario of what the president has done wrong. And I just want to say one thing that I think is important for people to realize. In the process of this, there's been a lot of attacks on the whistleblower by the Republican as being anonymous, as if that makes the charges uh, uh, less reliable. Whistleblowers are, by definition, anonymous. And particularly if a whistleblower is a member of the intelligence community, they need to be anonymous. So that does not, that's how it works. It does not reduce the significance. Right. There's so many layers to this. I mean, I, I've seen uh, some some coverage, some fears that uh, the, the New York Times deciding to uh, kind of uncover at least part of the whistleblower's identity, at least explain that they were uh, part of the CIA, whatever. Uh, was actually endangering them. You know, there, there's this fear uh, yeah. that that, that yeah. the Trump administration is going to, uh, uh, you know, I guess act a little like tough guy mm-hmm. dictators or something and shake this guy up. Or I mean, it, <laughs> do you see that happening? Or are you are you more? Uh, well, I look, guess have some I trust was, in this in the system. I don't have any trust in this system um, with the president with Donald Trump as the president of the United States. Now, I was surprised that the, the white, that the New York Times, excuse me, that the New York Times divulged that information, particularly with the specific of a CIA person who had been dispatched to the White House. That's not a large universe of people I think we can all fairly securely assume. So I do not think that was a good thing. I don't think it was a good thing protocol-wise, even if Barack Obama was still the president. I think it's, you know, there are some categories of people who whose anonymity needs to be shielded and protected by journalists, not the opposite. But I, I think it is, is, is uniquely dangerous in this administration. So, Christine, those Democrats who are still on the fence or not uh, weighing in that they feel we need impeachment proceedings, how is this, in your view, going to impact them? I mean, we do have a few from New York who um, have have either stated they don't feel it's the right course or are not, you know, are hedging right now. What do you make of that? Well, look, I think there are still Democrats who come from districts that are Republican districts historically or, or strongly Republican-leaning districts who are afraid, districts where the president has still has some level of, you know, a base. And just from a raw political perspective, 
one can understand the mathematics of that, if you will. But I saw, you know, a Congress uh, member, Mikey Sherrill, who's just to our neighbor over in New Jersey and a, a decorated veteran herself, uh, she made a very compelling case, and she had been on the fence up until Tuesday. She said that the situation here is that the president is manipulating international funding, international funding that is used to, at the end of the day, protect the in- interest of the United States. And for her, particularly as a veteran, she could not abide by that, and she did not believe her constituents could abide by that, for the president manipulating their taxpayer dollars and taking money that is supposed to be designed at the end of the day to support people who support the United States, and in this case, in a very vulnerable region, that just as a veteran, she couldn't continue on that. And I think that one, two, three of this, is so much clearer than anything else. And the international safety interaction and the misuse of people's hard-earned taxpayer dollars, I think this will give more and more people the kind of comfort that it gave Mikey Sherrill to take the position that she did. And she's incredibly articulate, particularly, particularly from her perspective as a veteran, about what changed her. Right, which is why House Speaker Pelosi finally decided to uh, fully embrace the impeachment process over over this Trump scandal. I mean, we've, we've seen so many Trump scandals over the past two years, but this uh, is different. Right, the thought process is that this one is so clear and easy to grasp, and and it has international, uh, you know, ramifications. Totally. I mean, are you? Uh, you seem to be happy, of course, that that the uh, the House is now embracing the the impeachment process. I mean, would you have personally preferred to to see it a, a long time ago, or are you happy with with this being the the straw that broke the camel's back, basically? You know, I I understood and sympathized with the position that Speaker Pelosi was in because she had members for whom this was just a very politically you know frightening position to take. But then she had a lot of members with whom I agreed who were like, no, 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 we have to do this. So she was in a tough spot. But no one's better at this kind of leadership than Nancy Pelosi. And she knew when the moment was to step in and take the reins. She did that, and I, th- I think that it has worked out quite well, the scenario and the timing of all of this. And I always put great faith in, in Speaker Pelosi's ability to time things out. The truth is, if looking back, couldn't have known it then, that if she had started any earlier, we still probably would have been moving along in investigation, et cetera, but nothing would have really popped, so to speak, until this point anyway. So, Christine, given that this uh, involves Joe Biden, that the president was encouraging, you know, there to be an investigation into Joe Biden's son's activities or his activities, I'm really curious about how this impacts the presidential race and Joe Biden's race. How do you feel that as these... you know, this moves towards impeachment proceedings. How does this affect, you know, the campaign, you know, to become the next president? Well, look, I don't think, and and, and I think the Biden people would say this off the record, this is not a good story for Joe Biden, because even though the president is, is everything he's done is, is completely wrong and outrageous and impeachable, no one likes headlines that have their, the, their son 
in, uh, allegedly involved in, you know, shady business with foreign interests uh, and, and the allegations of political, you know, of manipulation to get him that work and that job. That's just not the kind of thing, even if it is false in the case that this is, that you want repeated. It's just not, uh, you know, where you, where you want to have your name or your son's name, you know, out there in life. In light. That said, I think that uh, the vice president has been handling it well. And I do think this could be flipped and used by Biden to really kind of say, look, this is happening because he's most worried about me as a candidate. And, and use this as almost a strength moment. But overall, I think if the Biden people, if it was up to them, they would rather this not be out there. And I'm really curious because of the Quinnipiac poll that came out this week that showed that Elizabeth Warren uh, was essentially tied with uh, Biden yeah. in the latest poll. How much this even helps her at this point? Well, just, you know, raw politically, I, I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a race of the two of them at the moment. Now we've seen this race go from five people to two, to five, you know what I mean? So it's still still early, but I think she's doing a sensational job. I mean, there's just no question about how commanding she's been in the debates and the solidness of her campaigns and all of her policy plans out there. I think this does benefit her because she's in a third kind of a position, right? She's moving up. And then questions are being raised wrongly and unfairly about Joe Biden. Someone said to me recently, well, this is a time when Elizabeth Warren should attack Biden. I couldn't disagree with that more. I think it would be untoward, and I don't think she's thinking of it. I said this person, Elizabeth Warren doesn't need to do anything but be Elizabeth Warren. Now, Christine, uh, this is the other Jeff, of course, Jeff Colton from <laughs> City and State. <laughs> With the name of my publication, City and State, I always got to bring this back to local politics. Please, there, please, I love it. <laughs> I, I saw a release from you in your uh, capacity as uh, president and CEO of WIN, the, uh, the homeless uh, shelter organization. Yeah, uh, I, it's a complicated situation. So let me just put this simply. Basically, a city organization, the Independent Budget Office, put out a report uh, connecting the creation of new homeless shelters in Manhattan to lower housing prices. And you saw this yep. report, and you were not very happy about it. Tell me why. Well, first of all, the Independent Budget Office is a great entity. It was created legislatively by the city council in the early 1990s. It's funded as it should be by taxpayer dollars. And they usually have a very, very high standard of, of work that I would applaud. This report says in its kind of opening that they do not have the data to show causality. Causality being that a shelter caused property values to change one way or another. They say in the beginning they don't have the data to show that, yet they then conclude that shelters ha have, in fact, reduced property values in, in um, Manhattan. So how are they concluding something when they say they can't? Two, they looked at Manhattan, and they looked only at, as the Small, they had a small sample size, but two, they didn't look at co-ops co and rental properties. In Manhattan, they looked at this through the lens of one- and to three-unit private homes and condos. 
So not even an accurate outline of the types of housing that are predominant in Manhattan. The Furman Center, one of the premier kind of think tanks about housing and housing-related issues, you know, in uh, New York, came out, New York City, came out yesterday just trashing the report, particularly since in the report they referenced the Furman report. They didn't look at the issue of a block where a shelter might be in totality. So is that the only block in the neighborhood that doesn't, that's left out of, you know, the quote-unquote good school district and in the quote-unquote bad school district? Is there, are there parks on this block and not that block? Is there access to the subway here and not there? Things that would be relevant to why property values would go up or down. And now, now, Chris, just briefly, I mean, you clearly have issues with the the, uh, the the style of the report, the way they put it together. But, I mean, what, what about, like, the de Blasio administration really attacked this port ethically, saying, saying, you know, how, how dare you you worry about uh, property prices, basically, when, when there are homeless people that need to be sheltered. Is that also a, a, an issue at hand for you? Are you, are you worried about the narrative I mean, look, here? People can do research whether I think something is research-worthy, you know, I'm not the, the, the arbitrator of what is quality research out there. The independent budget of the office at the request of electeds or others can research, you know, whatever they want. So I'm not going to say they can't research things. Do I think it's the most important I- issue to research right now? A hundred percent not. Um, but I think it is better to keep this criticism at the level of the quality and the, the, the methodology, because this is a research report. Let me also say, at Wynn, we have, we have shelters all across the city. We have four in Manhattan, uh, 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 in Hell's Kitchen area, East Harlem and West Harlem. Not one of those areas, not one, has seen property values go down since we opened or began operating a shelter. In fact, most of them, have seen the property values, particularly East Harlem and Hell's Kitchen, dramatically increase during the time that we have been there. So my personal experience is that that is simply just not the case. Look, I think it's unfortunate, and I understand what the mayor was saying, because now there's this report out there that's done so poorly that adds to the negative a, a, a negative narrative of really marginalizing and finger pointing and almost criminalizing homeless people. I, I just think it, 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 it is terrible that it's out there and they've done this. And on that note, we're going to close this segment. Christine Quinn, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us on WBAI today. No problem. I love a conversation that goes from the Ukraine to blocks in uptown Manhattan. That's a perfect kind of conversation. That's a Talk New York later, conversation. Guys. Have a great day. Exactly. Bye, guys. So you've been listening to Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and my guest co-host today, Jeff Colton, on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We're going to take calls shortly. We have another guest first, and then we'll take your call. So write down this number, 212-209-2877. That number is 212-209-2877. We're going back to Ukraine right now with our next guest, David Birdsell professor and dean of the Marx School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College. Dean, welcome to uh, Driving Forces. Great to be here this afternoon. 
What I'm sure you've been sitting in your office watching the uh, congressional hearing all day, or at least checking everything that's been going on. What has been your reaction to all these fast-moving developments? Well, these are, of course, extraordinary and very serious revelations. Uh, we have a process that is only at the very beginning. Uh, there's a lot that we don't know at this stage. Uh, right now, we have a number of players uh, who are important in this, uh, important, including the testimony today from the acting director of national intelligence. Um, and the fact that we have an acting director in this role at this time with such major revelations about the way that the White House is interacting with uh, the intelligence apparatus, on the one hand, uh, involving the Justice Department in unprecedented actions, as far as we know, uh, but also the way that the White House is using its uh, traditional diplomatic role to do very non-traditional things with regard to personal electoral benefit for the president. Uh, these are remarkable times. Now, Professor, I, I got to ask, I mean, the, the general focus has been so much on the Democratic primary already. But now that, uh, you know, the, the wheels of impeachment are turning, d does this almost put the, the primary campaign on hold in a way as, as the nation and everyone interested in politics kind of shifts their focus back to government and, and how that's working? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say it puts it on hold, but it plainly introduces a major issue that is not directly involved with the primary campaign. And let's face it, the primary is still at a very early phase. Candidates are sorting out their support. Uh, they're trying to see if they can remain players in the fundraising game. Uh, and we're still early in that process. Uh, this is an urgent matter unfolding in real time, and we may get to a stage uh, when people who are campaigning for the presidency, particularly those who are sitting members of Congress, uh, decide that they have more urgent work to do in the district, uh, and that may also tilt uh, some people's decision about their persistence in the Democratic campaign, depending on exactly how furiously this heats up on what timeline. So given everything that has come to light in the last few days, what do you see as the strategy that develops towards uh, towards impeachment, but also on the flip side of that, the president's strategy to manage this crisis? Well, I, I, I think it's going to be very hard to uh, predict the particulars of the latter, but let me start there because the broad strokes are very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, it is to claim that he is actually the person most interested in corruption, that that corruption was Joe Biden's and his son Hunter's, uh, despite the fact that that has been roundly rejected by every news organization uh, that doesn't have a partisan interest in this outcome uh, as a plausible reconstruction of events at the end of the Obama administration, which is the period during which uh, the prosecutor who was removed uh, in Ukraine uh, was removed with Joe Biden, one of many voices internationally, arguing that he was not actually interested in uh, policing corruption in Ukraine. Um, so obfuscation, uh, the argument of equivalence, the argument that he is actually the person who is trying to uh, uphold uh, the rule of law in this case, contrary to all of the evidence that has been uncovered to date, uh, that seems to be the Trump administration's strategy. It parallels the strategy uh, that we saw with regard to the lead-up to the release of the Mueller report, uh, with regard to all of the accusations, uh, some of them uh, still lacking evidence at the very least, with regard to the campaign's possible collusion uh, with Russians, a finding that could not be sustained, uh, sustained in the Mueller report. Um, 
we know this playbook, and it seems to be at work here. I think the real question for the Democrats is whether they are going to continue to allow this to be a six-committee process with the other five committees focusing their reports on the Judiciary Committee headed by Gerald Nadler of New York, um, or whether they appoint a special committee uh, to investigate this, as was done uh, to investigate the Watergate scandal uh, in the 1970s. The advantages of that are that it allows the House to continue to do its normal business, uh, obviously with a great big light shining on the activities of that special committee, um, but it also uh, really puts into play uh, the expertise of House staff uh, who take a somewhat larger role in pushing the public performance forward than the elected officials who, let's just say, have not done uh, the most crackerjack job in terms of the crispness and precision of the questioning of any witnesses that have come before them uh, from Mueller to the present day. What I also find interesting is that, and Jeff and I were talking about the progressive movement early in the show and about how a number of candidates are surfacing to challenge incumbent members of the House. And I'm curious when you, you know, you think of Jerry Nadler, for instance, as these uh, hearings, as this process moves forward, um, my my gut reaction is this helps someone like Jerry Nadler in his race for re-election and hurts those who are trying to challenge him at this point because he is now going to have such a public voice in moving this forward. How do you feel this is going to play out with especially those members of Congress here in New York City uh, who are confronted with challengers right now yet going to be such a public face through this impeachment process? Well, I think it cuts both ways. I, you know, clearly it gives them uh, a lot of attention that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, it it makes people who are inclined to support the basic rationale of the investigation uh, sympathetic toward their uh, toward their performance potentially, unless they betray that trust in some fashion, but which could be just merely incompetent questioning, uh, as well as something more nefarious. I'm not suggesting that there is such a thing out there. Uh, but people will be inclined to think of them more favorably and, of course, as their representatives in this process. Uh, on the other hand, of course, it keeps them in Washington. It prevents them from coming back to the district, um, but in a way that uh, is I think, going to be readily excused by constituents who will expect their representative to be in Washington doing this absolutely critical and very visible business in real time. Well, yeah, I mean, on on that note, do you have any sense of how long we could expect this process to go until, for example, there's a a vote in the House or until the the Senate has to vote? I mean, how long is this impeachment process? Uh, Have you did you, do you have uh, notes from history to compare it to, or is this uh, it may as well the, the, the slate be wiped clean from the Clinton years? Well, I, I think that the slate should be wiped clean, and there are two reasons for that. One is that this impeachment process, which right now the Speaker appears to be trying to constrain simply to these Ukraine issues, uh, it, it could get a lot larger. Uh, the whistleblower report refers to a number of cases in which the president has pursued his self-interest and is dealing with uh, uh, foreign governments um, and leaders of foreign governments. If that's true, and if that's contained in the same whistleblower report, it may be very, very hard to constrain the substance of the investigation. And we could be talking about uh, uh, dozens, if not scores, of witnesses 
each one of whom the White House will try to prevent from testifying on the basis of executive privilege. And that could mean that each one of these goes to separate court proceedings. Uh, it's possible that all of them get bundled and the Supreme Court issues a decision, but I think that highly unlikely, both in terms of the way that the court operates and the, and the composition of the court today. Um, we have never had this level of refusal of cooperation of a presidency with the Congress in exercising its legitimate oversight powers, short of impeachment. And now that it's a pitched impeachment battle, that doesn't get any better. You can be sure of that. So this could go on for a long time. So, Dean, I'm curious what you feel was the most damning takeaway from the uh, from the whistleblower complaint. What has resonated with you most? The thing that resonates most is the notion that we are willing to sub subject foreign policy to the short-term personal and or electoral gains of a sitting president. Um, and if we think about what that means for a moment, it's really staggering. And I realize that there could be differences of opinion among people listening to this program about how urgent the concerns in Ukraine are. But the U.S. Congress has determined that they are urgent. Uh, we have a situation in which the uh, in which the Russian Russian Federation has occupied territory uh, in in uh, in the eastern portions of Ukraine. Uh, that there are troops who are allegedly Russian troops out of uniform. They're in uniforms, but they're uniforms without insignia. Uh, who are conducting military operations to this day in that region. They're certainly using Russian munitions, um, and the fear about instability that this might create in Western Europe overall uh, is, is acute. Um, and because of that, we have authorized uh, military support in the form of munitions that we will give them to be able to counter the Russian munitions. Um, and there are lots of arguments about whether that's adequate. But to think, if, and if this is, and this is, of course, the position of the Congress, if this is an urgent matter of national security and global stability, but Mr. Trump is sees fit to subject the release of aid to assistance with his campaign, that is remarkable, unprecedented, plainly grounds for impeachment, and truly shocking to anybody who cares about the uh, conduct of American foreign policy. Now, I, I may be asking you to uh, predict the future a little bit here, looking ahead to our, our next president, our next many presidents. I mean, is the way that Trump has conducted foreign policy, do you anticipate this changing the way that the United States conducts foreign policy? I mean, you know, basically, uh, as far as potentially taking away some commander-in-chief powers from the president— uh, just because of this potential for abuse, or I guess is that what the House is doing with impeachment, and uh, it's nothing to worry about for the future? The, the way that Trump has been breaking norms of government, uh, whether it's in the conduct of foreign policy, whether it's relationships with the Congress, whether it's in disclosures to the American people, governing by tweet, etc., 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 none of this is illegal all of it is deeply contrary to norms that we have embraced in one form or another since the founding of the republic. Uh, at the same time, we know that the presidency has been accreting power gradually over the course of at least the last half of the 20th century to the present day. The use of executive orders and other uh, independent executive actions uh, has grown over time dramatically uh, from uh, you know one or two such uh, uh, actions in the course of a president and see the hundreds. Uh, so, you know, there, there's there's a long-term trend, and then there was the very short-term set of challenges that Mr. Trump uh, uh, 
presents us with uh, if, if we're interested in governance. Um, and I think it will create some changes, but what they'll be, I don't, I, I, I find very, very hard to predict. Um, because a lot of this, again, is comportment, is the trust that we have that something will work. What I am confident in predicting is that the prestige of the United States is eroding because of these kinds of behaviors. And the next president, whoever she or he may be, will be confronted with a United States that enters having to rebuild relationships, which prior to this administration may have been frayed a bit, but are now completely torn. Uh, and otherwise they had existed going all the way back to 1945 and the end of the Second World War. Um, and that is a remarkable landscape. It's a, it's, it's a frightening prospect because it's so easy to get things wrong. Uh, but this next president is going to have to do an absolutely Olympic job of re-knitting the fabric of our foreign policy. And on that note, Dean Birdsell, I'd like to thank you for joining me, Jeff Simmons, and Jeff Colton here on WBAI today. Thanks for having me. So the phone lines are now open, 212-209-2877. Let us know what you think about what Dean Birdsell said or what Christine Quinn said or what even Jeff or me, Jeff, either Jeff, said today. What do you think about uh, the president's actions? Uh, ha is this an abuse of power? Is this impeachable? What should the next steps be? We want to hear your opinions. 212-209-2877. We've already got a caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what is on your mind? Yes, what's on my mind is, uh, given the tribalist uh, atmosphere, the tribalist nationalist atmosphere, even Donald Trump tried to evoke it at the UN speech, that's almost global. I see this thing as a kind of a gamble for him, as saying that, look, if I could overcome this impeachment process at this point, because you have to remember, the American people are not that informed about foreign policy. We're kind of like an isolationist mindset. Most people don't know outside of their own block. And when you start talking about these foreign entanglements, most people, like Donald Trump said when he was getting ready to run, he said, look, I could shoot some money and people who still vote for me. And I'm worried about that because I worry that he will overcome this and be even a stronger candidate coming up. So I'd like to hear your opinion on that. Well, the phone lines are lighting up. I think you raise a very good point, uh, though, about people's mindsets, because as I've even discussed this with folks, I'm like, oh, yeah, asking a foreign leader to intervene. That's what it comes down to, that you've gone outside of the country to ask someone to investigate someone who's his political rival. In simplistic terms, I think they get that, but they may not you know they may not put it might in, not be enough yes yeah. and, and, and that's where i agree with you thank you yeah. so much for giving us a call okay. we're, we're going to go okay. to the next call uh welcome to wbai what is your name and what's on your mind hi welcome to wbai hello okay let's try another call hi welcome to w welcome to wbai what is your name and what's on your mind Nope. So we're missing someone there. 
Okay. <laughs> Let me just take one minute to say I, I really did like the point he raised there. I found uh, what uh, Dean Birdsell mentioned, uh, just talking about the situation in Ukraine. I mean, that's kind of this funny shadow behind this uh, this conversation that's happening around impeachment, this idea that, yes, the U.S. is providing foreign aid. I mean, we provide so much foreign aid, and uh, it's it's rarely um, covered in, 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 you know, common conversation. Obviously, there's some people that are extremely focused on that sort of uh, piece of the federal government, but, uh, you know, this might bring that ask, that conversation into a more common uh, parlance, and uh, I'm interested to see what happens. So let's see if we've got another caller on the line. Hold on just one second, and here we go. Welcome to WBAI. What is your name and what is on your mind? Hello? Seem to just be experiencing a little uh, technical issues here, so uh, we're going to see if we can remedy that and pop in another call when we get a chance. We'll try once more. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what's on your mind? Hello, Dee from Manhattan. Hi, Dee. How, how are you? How, I enjoy your show. I, I just wanted to bring forth the point that impeachment is not the same as a criminal code. A president is held to a much higher standard, so they do not have to follow the regular protocol that a courtroom does, you know? They're allowed to uh, speak to him about anything. Like, they could talk about the hotels. They could talk about his daughter getting this deal in China for her design, her clothesline. or what. It, you know, they have multitude of um, infractions against him, wouldn't you say? Well, in this case, uh, there seems to be, from what I have been reading, there seems to be... Uh, the the reason for in uh, I guess a hearing to determine whether he violated um, violated the law. Uh, you know, I don't have that specific law right in front of me right now, but earlier today in reading that, it seemed as if there was a specific language that uh, he was he violated the law. Well, That's, D, you are correct yeah. in, in one point. As far as I know, yes, there is no it's a higher standard. Well, there's there's actually no. There's a lower standard. Lower I don't standard. Think, yeah, there's uh, the what Congress is, doesn't yeah. have a burden of of proof as you do in a, a right. That's courtroom. what I meant. Lower standard, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, the emoluments, the emoluments clause, the emoluments. Uh, know about right. about him so mixing if, his business with the government business. If, if Congress wanted to vote to impeach, you're right. They they do not have to. Uh, you know, do it they have reasonable have a doubt. They don't have to have a reason. In a general, a general across the board, um, a view of his performance is, is abominable. T, thanks so much for giving Thank us you. a call today. Thank We're going to try to squeeze in a few more calls because we've only got about five minutes left. Welcome to WBAI. You are on the air. What is your name? And briefly, what's on your mind? Hi, this is Ida from Manhattan. Hi, Ida. Welcome. Greetings. Um... On, what's on my mind is how it's kind of convenient that this is all coming out right now and no one's really, everyone's kind of forgotten of the human trafficking and the child sex trafficking that Epstein and Trump and a lot of the other cronies, um, especially really uh, wealthy people or men, are connected to. Um, that's number one. Number two if there is an impeachment process, won't Pence be the next person to be the vice president? As vice president, won't he be in charge? And aren't isn't he part of the uh, policy team? All the policies that he's made, all the decisions that he's made, have been with Pence. So we wouldn't necessarily be getting any anyone better. And three, um, I'm just wondering 
when is it when is it going what is it going to take for us to, to delve into the connections with Saudi Arabia and even as as the Moroccan connection to uh, the original I don't know if it's the constitution actually now that I'm thinking of it it might be the constitution but know that George Washington also um, a a spare for the for a Moroccan king and I want to know that connection to Western Asia and it's con- and how we see it right now presenting itself in the connections with Trump or the administration and Saudi Arabia. Ida, thank you so much for giving us a call. We're going to take one one more call because then I want to wrap up with Jeff. Welcome to WBAI. What is your name and what is on your mind? Yes, hello. I'm the Bronx here. And I'd like to say that I know President Trump could appear as a screwball at times, but when somebody is trying to harpoon you 55 times, and you want to get to the bottom of the story, I don't blame him for trying to get to the bottom of that story. Because how how much abuse can somebody take without wanting to uh, have a little uh, understanding of what was going on? Are you talking about the bottom of the uh, the Joe Biden and Hunter Biden story? Or, yeah. Or one? yeah. Yeah. I mean, how long are you going to you going to get parts? Part, a harpoon constantly. I mean, you want to you want to uh, get to the bottom of the story. In other words, uh, everybody else, unfortunately, it's okay when they do things. When he tries to do something like that, they get mad at him. Like, uh, don't protect yourself. Be a victim. I'm too well aware of those type of stories. You know. Well, thank you so much for giving us a call today. So, Catherine, did we have one more call on the line? Okay, we've got one more call. We'll squeeze it in. Welcome to WBAI. We've got just a minute left. Uh, what's on your mind? Hi, it's Russell. Um, you know, a lot of people are missing the point here. We don't want to load the proceeding up with all the junk Trump has done. This is a laser-like focus on what he's doing, trading a quarter billion dollars of our weapons for, for dirt on his opponent. The morons who support him need to make it. It has to be very simple. And I'd like you to consider this, that Putin probably said to Trump, hey, listen, don't give him those weapons. Get something out of him for it. And Putin egged on Trump. He's a a moron, and we're going to be glad to get rid of him. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you so much. And on that note, we've got just about a minute or two left, Jeff. So final thoughts on uh, your first appearance here on WBAI. I just got a comment on what Russell yeah, said. I, yeah. I think I think Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats would be happy to uh, to have somebody who could speak so uh, quickly and straightforwardly on the issue there. I mean, I was actually, you know, it is so easy to get lost in uh, all the, the various uh, curves and, and folds of, of this latest Trump scandal around impeachment, and uh, I think this is obviously uh, a uh, there's a political aspect to this entire thing, and uh, I think the Democrats have a real interest in in making it straightforward and simple and an easy case, and that's going to be very interesting to watch their strategy uh, as we go forward over these next few months and uh, whether it sticks. And if people want to find out more about you and follow your coverage, where should they go? 
That's right. Uh, my name again is Jeff Colton. You can follow me on Twitter at JC Colton, and you can see all my work online at cityandstateny.com. We are a weekly magazine covering city and state politics. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, go to cityandstateny.com, subscribe to our magazine, subscribe to our newsletters. I'm really proud of the work that uh, our team does there. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me in studio today. I also want to thank our guests, Christine Quinn and David Birdsell, and also Catherine for being amazing on the phones today. Those phone lines lit up, so thank you so much for that. Uh, Next week, I'll be back with more political coverage on a city, state, and national level. Stay tuned now for the news with Paul DiRienzo.